The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is an unusual one and one that I think is going to be of great interest to people who are interested in historic archaeology the Society for Historic Archaeology in uh, the United States is the largest historic archaeological organization in the world. And my guest today is the president of that organization. Uh, Dr. Joe Joseph is a Ph.D., uh, received his degree at the University of Pennsylvania. He has extra. extra He's primarily in the southern United States, the southeastern United States, and uh, he has been in archaeology over the past 40 years. He has his own uh, cultural resource management firm called New South Associates, and as I said, Joe has left his mark indelibly on the evolution of the Society for Historic Archaeology, and that will be the primary theme of our discussion today. I want to welcome to the program my very good friend, Dr. Joe Joseph. Joe, thanks for hearing. Joe, it's my pleasure to be here. Joe, tell us a little bit before we start talking about the organization, how you got into archaeology, and what motivated you to turn to the sphere of historic archaeology in particular. So I was introduced to the field by my father. He was an engineer working at the Savannah River site who had a deep love of uh, the history of our community of Aiken, South Carolina, and became active in the Archaeological Society of South Carolina. So I was attending lectures and talks with the ASSC as a probably 10-year-old and going out and volunteering on projects from my teens on. Um, I worked a good bit. My father led efforts to do recovery work on Fort Moore, which was a frontier trading post on the South Carolina-Georgia border and worked with staff from the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology to salvage that site uh, in advance of a new housing development construction. And I worked for a summer as a volunteer on that project. And then the following year, which was my senior year in high school, I had my offer of uh, paid employment to go do archaeological field work on the Teleco Reservoir. So I got introduced at, uh, at a very young age. And I never looked back. 
And you started out obviously as a, as a young young as a child, really, and then you began working in the field. And when did you decide that this was really what you wanted to do professionally? So I went and worked as a field technician for several seasons, um, but I was in college at that time as an English major. I didn't really think about archaeology as a career, and I was an English major at the College of Charleston. Uh, I would receive employment in archaeology you know, virtually every summer. And at one point in time, my advisor at the college called me into her office, and she said, Joe, I really think you need to think about changing your major. Um, I recommend archaeology as a major because there are no jobs in English, and you're getting employed as an archaeologist. So I'm probably one of the few archaeologists that got advised to go into the field because there were careers in it. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, perspective at this point, certainly. But uh, now, uh, as you, you, you and I both know, I mean, the, the profession has changed markedly, and your career has basically tracked a lot of the primary developments in the emergence of the cultural resource management field. Why don't you talk a little bit about how your professional objectives changed as you evolved from uh, basically just going into archaeology because you liked it into uh, the business aspect of it and uh, specifically uh, from that into a concentration on historic archaeology once you established your business. So the uh, when I first started off in CRM archaeology, I made a, a dime less than minimum wage. Uh, working for UT, and the reason why we didn't have to be paid minimum wage was we were uh, getting accommodations in an abandoned church camp, and we're and we're being fed meals. So that was the uh, the rationale for the pay. Uh, so it was a very rugged lifestyle at that point in time. Um, very labor intensive. We did a lot of hand excavation. I was working on a mound site, and we dug uh, trenches through the mound that were 30 to 40 feet deep. Um, it also sort of was one of the f first projects that made the transition over into the use of heavy machinery when they did a later phase of, of excavation doing machine stripping. Um, I think the biggest changes that I've seen are the development of an industry around cultural resource management. Uh, the National Historic Preservation Act, which was enacted in uh, 1966, has a requirement for federal agencies, federally funded projects, federally permitted projects to take into consideration their effects on um, archaeological remains. And at that point in time, all of the work that I did was with various universities or university branches. And as time went on, engineering firms such as uh, Commonwealth Engineering that, that you and I both worked with at one point in the time came to be engaged in CRM archaeology. And then the next step from that was the actual firms that were dedicated to, to doing cultural resource work. Um, for me, what I liked about CRM was that I worked in different places on different projects on different subjects uh, all the time. And I liked the variety that CRM archaeology brought me to. I had never thought about being an urban archaeologist when I started, but early on we had projects that were in urban settings, and so I had to learn and study and uh, make myself into an urban archaeologist. And I liked the fact that, you know, in CRM you work on a project. You're not working on something... Um, that is going on for multiple years and seasons, but you're working typically a short, you know, anywhere from a couple of weeks to one year and a half at, at, at the maximum project with an, with an outcome at the end, and then you move on to the next. And that type of um, work style fit my personality very well. 
So once you did that, um, you understood, obviously, because you grew up in that uh, in that pivotal period during the 1980s when the entire focus of archaeology changed from an academic to a uh, largely professional and slash commercial pursuit. And you kind of reflected that transition, didn't you? And did you, you picked up that, that that was the direction that the field was going to. And rather, and then at what point did you make a decision that you wanted to actually start up your own operation? Well, and actually, that came about uh, because we were uh, working with an, another firm in the Atlanta area, of, a relatively large firm, that went through some difficulties. And uh, basically, both my wife and, I, wife and I and my partner were all laid off at the same time. We were all out of work. We were looking for something, uh, something to do and something to sustain us and came up with the idea of creating New South Associates. And we had backing of another CRM firm, uh, the former John Milner Associates, which has uh, since been um, uh, subsumed by Commonwealth Heritage Group. And they were willing to provide uh, business advice and sort of financial backing so we could get up off our feet. And that was really the impetus. I think I had always thought about running and managing things on my own, but as in many instances in life, it's the circumstances that take you to where you end up going. And that's a, that's a point I want to just bring up a little bit and, and uh, capitalize on somewhat, because I think a lot of people still in this day and age tend to look at archaeology in the traditional context of being an academic pursuit. But when you and I both started out, uh, we uh, we were at that vanguard of, of operations and and. and uh, changes in perspective, if you will, where uh, commercial archaeology took a push and we decided that we were going to push it along a little bit further. Once you made that decision, how hard was it for you to integrate a kind of a business model into a a more, uh, shall we say, directed vision of doing archaeology and uh, in, in a commercial context generally? Well, so so we've always operated New South Associates as a social business. So we operate under a different business model than a lot of corporations. Uh, our main objective is to make a contribution to both research and the communities that we work with to, to sort of to give back to those who have a, an appreciation and an interest in the past. Uh, I think we feel very fortunate to be able to do what we do and do not see being in business as something that is going to generate uh, substantial incomes for the owners and really take care of the owners and leave the, the, the working folks to do the work. Um, we operate very much as a team and try and take care of our employees and try and be profitable to keep the doors open and the lights on, but at the same time, we're, profit is not our number one objective. And that's always the big challenge of commercial archaeology. I've seen a number of sites that have been given a short shift because they've proved to be more dense and complex than the consultant who bid on the project recognized going in. And at that point in time, you either you have you know you have two choices: you can either cut back on the work on the site and do disservice to the site and the archaeology, or you can give up having any profit on that site and probably generate a loss, but get some valuable information back out. So we've we've always gone to that. Um, that research uh, extreme of the of the of the business. 
Do you think a lot of firms are following that model, or have we come to the point right now where the industry has matured to the point where essentially a lot of firms are selecting what their priorities are and not necessarily focusing so much on the resource as simply complying to the letter of the law? I, I, I think we are doing better that I think there is a higher quality of work across the board that I see now than I saw in those early days. One of the other challenges of the early days is that, um, the, you know, work was more difficult to obtain. There weren't as many projects. And so it was pretty much a low bid mentality. That was the, you know, I had, I had one formula for winning a proposal when we submitted on a job. And that was that we had to have the technically best proposal and the lowest cost. You know, it was, it was it was both. You never, you rarely saw agencies that were were awarding to a uh, a higher cost uh, just on the technical qualifications. So you really had to do both. Um, as as the industry has developed, as the economy has developed, there is less of that pressure. Um, and I think the quality of the work has improved because the state historic preservation offices, the state archaeological councils have all become more active in setting out guidelines, setting out standards, making sure that work is done to a certain uh, threshold before it can pass review and be accepted. So you're finding that by and large the quality of the product is being elevated and so that the primary criterion for getting a project and doing the work is not necessarily low bid and and uh, cost cost effectiveness yeah i mean we we have some clients and they're private clients who come to us on fairly large projects without uh, without even asking for a bid and knowing that we wouldn't be the lowest cost and it's on it's based on delivery we we are very much or uh, oriented to getting our jobs done on time, on schedule, getting comprehensive reports that go through State Historic Preservation Office and agency review very cleanly and easily with, uh, without a lot of discussion and back and forth that can result in project delays. Um, so I think that all ties together with, um, with the way that the industry has, has come around. Tell me a little bit about your focus on historic archaeology, and if you would, as as a preliminary comment to that, identify to the general public what the differences are between historic and prehistoric archaeology. So, historical archaeology, as as we define it, is the archaeology of the of the modern world. Uh, in essence, the archaeology of cultures and sites from the 15th century on. Um, I, you know, my father had introduced me to historical archaeology as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a kid. Um, I had gone out on various historical projects, but the, really the sort of my interest and in, in, in sort of a twofold uh, answer. Um, I had done work with the University of Tennessee on a, on a, on a Mississippian mountain site on my first project, and it was a fascinating project. Um, but I wasn't necessarily sold off that project on doing CRM archaeology. I came back. I was scheduled to work with the South Carolina Institute on a project that following summer. I was in school at my local university. And I got a call right as classes were ending that that project was going to be delayed. Uh, but, yeah, I was dependent on the income that I earned over the summer to support me through the school year. So I went to a local construction company and asked if they had any positions for laborers. Uh, the secretary looked at me a little bit oddly and said, sure, fill out this paperwork, show up tomorrow morning at 6. 
and I arrived the next morning uh, to learn that I was the only white laborer on the construction company. All of my coworkers were African American, and all of the managers were uh, and, and equipment operators were white. So it was a very racially divided, and it was a very racist situation that I put myself into. Um, I think that my interest in African-American archaeology spun out of that. I, when I left that project, I was then actually had the institute job show up, and I went to work with Bill Lees at Limerick Plantation in South Carolina. And we were working at Limerick Plantation. We were recovering all this pottery that Bill was telling me was identified at that point in time as Colono Indian ware, but there was growing the, uh, a growing thesis that it actually had been made by African Americans as well as made by the Indians as a trade ware. And so for the first time I saw, here I am working in a CRM setting, I'm also seeing that archaeology can help us to learn and understand African American history. I felt, I think, a debt to my coworkers because I had been able to walk away from that construction job. They hadn't, they, you know, they had, in essence, little or no options other than to accept the abuse and uh, conditions that they had to work under. And so I was very um, enthusiastic to find out that here's a, here's a field of archaeology, of CRM archaeology, that, that can allow me to give back to a community. Uh, and from that point on, I was only interested in historic sites and primarily interested in African-American sites. And you cultivated that interest as your company emerged and, and got larger. Did you put a focus on uh, those types of projects, plantation studies, and uh, subsequent uh, periods in, in, in historic archaeology? Yeah, I mean, as, as, we, as we grew, as we developed our projects, obviously we developed more staff, so different people would be assigned different jobs. And I, if, if it was a project that had a strong African-American emphasis, then I would always put myself in as a management role, as a field role, because I wanted to be involved in the research. Um, and I had a chance to work on a pretty diverse set of sites, uh, the, uh, including you know, a, a, a free African-American community in Springfield, Georgia, um, which was a this, you know, very unusual site type that hadn't been looked at much, uh, plantation sites, uh, African-American cemeteries, other urban African-American sites. So... Again, working in the CRM field where you're going from project to project, rather than having a focus, okay, I'm just doing plantation archaeology, and I'm only studying plantations, and I'm maybe just only looking at this one plantation. Mm -hmm. I was bouncing around the southeast, but I was bouncing around the southeast looking for African-American history, and then in doing so, I was able to see that heritage in in a much bigger perspective than I would have otherwise. And we will be back with our very provocative discussion with Dr. Joe Joseph of New South Associates after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com where can you learn about EasyWayPromotions.com's social media marketing, brand positioning, and more? Easy Talk Live. Where can you get tuned into celebrities in the business world? Easy Talk Live. Where can you learn about entrepreneurment? Easy Talk Live. Every week, host Eric EZ Zuli and his celebrity friends talk about global causes, offer tips and tricks that you can use right now on social media, and give you the chance to promote your projects on Easy Talk Live. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. 
Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the bioeconomy, tune into TerraTech with host Jim Lane. Every day, new and substantial products are in our lives. What we wear, eat, and drink in our travels and in our health. TerraTech will spotlight these products and show you where and how they are being used. Listen for TerraTech live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join the innovators and the innovations and move forward. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are back with our special guest, Dr. Joe Joseph of New South Associates. And as I had indicated earlier, and as the previous discussion has emphasized, Joe is a one of the chief proponents of historic archaeology and is currently the president of the Society for Historic Archaeology, which is the largest such organization in the world. Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about the organization and the 50th anniversary of its formation uh, in this next segment here? I'll be glad to, Joe. So the SHA was established in 1967, as obvious from its 50th anniversary. Um, And it's interesting at that point in time that archaeologists were predominantly engaged in the study of prehistoric culture. Uh, There was a growing interest in the archaeology of historic sites, but those archaeologists had a hard time finding a a society, um, resources, places where they could go present their results. Uh, For example, Stanley South, who I worked with um, uh, fairly extensively, he he was hired by the North Carolina Division of Historic Sites to work at Brunswick Town, a lost colonial town, and he submitted a paper abstract to the Southeastern Archaeological Conference and was rejected and told, well, we don't present talks on uh, historic period sites. So the the historical archaeologists, archaeologists that were interested in the historic past, uh, started having meetings and discussions about the need to have a society where they could share their research uh, develop their interest in historical archaeology, a place where they could all have interaction and exchange. Um, they had a formative meeting in Dallas uh, in 67. Uh, they actually had a then sub-meeting of that, of the prominent historical archaeologists at that time, and there were all of 14 who were considered prominent uh, to decide whether or not to form the a society, uh, which they did, and they formed the Society for Historical Archaeology. Um, the, it, the, the, that initial meeting, I think, was very interesting. It was termed as an international meeting. Uh, there were representatives from both Mexico and Canada, as well as the U.S., and I think that's one of the aspects of historical archaeology that I find most engaging. Uh, you know, we are dealing with similar cultural processes, similar or sometimes the same material culture, um, 
different cultural transformations around the globe. And so this is really a the world's first global archaeology. You can I can look at a, the results of an African American excavation in Brazil and find research and the discoveries that tie back into work that I may be doing on a site in Charleston, South Carolina, for example. Um, so the SHA is um, a, a, a professional society for those with an interest in historical archaeology. Uh, you can learn more about us on our website, with it, which is SHA.org. Uh, it's open to everybody with an interest in uh, in sites of the historic period, uh, but there also are great resources for individuals who may be interested in historic artifacts. Uh, for example, we've got wonderful resources on bottle glass identification because obviously we as historical archaeologists have to really hone in and know the dates and the construction of the objects that we're recovering on sites. But we share that interest, I think, in the artifacts of America's past with a number of different uh, individuals. And so that's always been another of the great benefits of the SHA is that we can share and collaborate with researchers who may not be interested in uh, historical archaeology, but may have an interest in a specific ceramic type that we're also finding on our sites and that we can uh, can share results. Tell us a little bit about the conference, the yearly conference, the journal, how it's evolved, and how the focus on historic archaeology has changed, whether or not it's been regionally specific, has it been uh, more national in context and in scope, and what the various divisions are within historic archaeology that people are concentrating on this day and age. Sure. So, so, so I'll start off with some of the, the sort of the, how the uh, society itself has evolved. When we first started out, we were really divided between two different classes of archaeologists studying historic sites. There were those who referred to themselves as historic sites archaeologists, and they were typically working for state, uh, local, and sometimes national parks, doing excavations on historic sites that were really geared toward helping to discover what that site contained so it could be interpreted to the public. Uh, they often referred to themselves as the handmaidens of history. And then we had archaeologists that were interested in the anthropological process, and they saw that even though we have a historic record, there is much that the historic record uh, ignores that doesn't record, and there are also times where the historic record is distorted. And so as they worked on various sites, they recognized that taking an anthropological perspective to historic period sites would allow us to provide a more comprehensive, complete understanding of, of American history. Uh, and as, as we've evolved over time, we are much more in the anthropological side of the field. Um, we meet annually in January, um, early January. Uh, the conference venues vary because we are dependent on local committees that want to be our host committees. And that's a great thing as well because they're, they know their local community. They're setting up the tours and other things, other events that are part of the conference. Um, our attendance ranges from around 750 up to 1,200, 1,250, uh, and the conference is typically more heavily attended if it's on the East Coast uh, because there's a strong concentration of historical archaeologists on the eastern seaboard as obviously the oldest, uh, some of the oldest parts of America. Um, we publish a journal, um, Historical Archaeology, 
which is published in a quarterly uh, uh, now. It's, it started off as a, as a single issue and uh, evolved to a quarterly by the 1990s. And the journal editor is Chris Matthews. Uh, we have just reached an agreement to move publication from uh, being done in-house to being done through uh, Springer Press. And this is a trend that we've seen through a number of different um, uh, associations having going to press publishers for their their publications, and we're we're very excited about our relationship with Springer. It brings a lot of different um, advantages to us that we couldn't do on our own, for, such as digital object identifiers, which allow a journal that is referenced in a document to be linked to the original source material, uh, so that we are we feel like we, going with Springer will provide us with greater exposure and. Um, um, and, you know, more readership and get our authors greater readership as well. And then they also have an online first publishing. So now when you have an article accepted, rather than waiting until that issue comes out, which sometimes can be, you know, easily several months, sometimes as long as a year, depending on how much material the journal already has slated for publication, you have your article published online. If you're going for a tenure review, you have something you can show to your committee and say, you know, yes, indeed, this is published. Here's the copy of it. It's good. Here's where it will be in this journal, even though the journal has not yet come out. We also have a print-on-demand press, and I would encourage um, your listeners to go on to our website, go to the publications page, and look up our POD. So we are using print-on-demand technology to generate um, a number of both special interest publications, but also topical readers. So we've taken things like plantation archaeology, African diaspora archaeology. We've taken articles that have been published in the journal and then compiled those into a reader. They're each put together by a special editor who does an introduction, talks about the the topic, the area, uh, provides guidance on the contents of the reader. And we're seeing those be very successful in, as, as uh, classroom use. But they're also great for people who may have an interest in a subject in it that we have covered in one of our perspectives volumes and want to know more about what historical archaeology can say about that topic. Let's talk a little bit about the topics that have become more contemporary in historic archaeology. What do you see as being the rising growth topics in historic archaeology, and why are they emerging in the present day? So I think what I would say is we're going more, I'm seeing more publications come out that are are landscape-based. Um, because I think across the fields we're starting to, you know, we as archaeologists work with individual sites, and so we're working with one location, but the National Park Service, other agencies have been pushing uh, the use of a cultural landscape approach to understanding the historic past, and I think with uh, technologies such as GIS, we have the capabilities now to come in and do more landscape-based analysis of now not just individual sites, but site settlement patterns, networks, uh, the interaction between natural resources and human inhabitants in different environments. Um, we're seeing a very strong interest in underwater archaeology, and I should mention that we partner with the uh, Advisory Council on Underwater Archaeology, so that's another aspect of the SHA. We work on both the land and the sea, and we've seen uh, the tremendous growth in um, the interest in underwater archaeology uh, that has also made it into the journal. And then we are seeing far more diverse 
uh, publications in terms of, of of their location. So we see international contributions into the journal on a on a fairly uh, regular basis. I wouldn't. It may even be you know virtually every issue these days. And so that's part of this uh, larger trend of becoming a more of a of a global archaeology and having global interchange as we as we move into the next fifty years. I was interested, actually, in that on a global scale, what are the areas or nations or spheres that have been encouraged to pursue historic archaeology internationally? So the, there's, a, there's an early association, the Society for Post-Medieval Archaeology in the U.K. There's an Australasian uh, society that, that has been directing historical archaeology uh, in Australia and, 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 and Southeast Asia. Um, there are growth areas, however, we're seeing a lot of archaeology coming out of Latin America. Uh, there was a pretty significant amount of work done in Brazil in connection with the Olympics. Um, so we're seeing, uh, and I'm not aware of, there may be associations, but I'm not aware of any uh, spe- specifically Latin American-focused society yet. We're also seeing the emergence of the field in Central Europe. Uh, we One of the volumes that we published through our print-on-demand press was a, a special publication on the archaeology of Central Europe because the archaeologists there reached out to us and said, hey, we're, we are trying to learn historical archaeology. We are trying to communicate historical archaeology. One of the things that we need assistance doing is a way to get the information out to other archaeologists interested in learning about the archaeology that we've done. Tell me a little bit also, I think a lot of people are interested in historic archaeology in part because, as many of us know, artifacts are exciting, our heritage is exciting, and the connection between material survival of the archaeological record and people's personal identifications and and histories are just so much more immediate with a historic affinity and, if you will, an ethnic affinity. Are there a lot of programs in historic archaeology that that uh, you have seen emerge in the past, say, 10 or 15 years that are really in the forefront of what's going on professionally? Well, I think there's a, there's a growing emphasis in public archaeology. So when you talk about artifacts being a way of, for people and students to connect to the past, that's exactly what it is. I've worked on you know, several different public projects, and volunteers, members of the public, love picking up a historic artifact and trying to interpret what it is. And it's very interesting to hear their, their interpretations. And quite often, you know, they're correct. It's something they know. It's something they can relate to. They can remember a grandparent having this. They can remember having sure. uh, seen something like this. It's, you, you don't have that same kind of connection with, with prehistoric material culture. It's much more difficult for someone to pick up a flake and talk about what a flake means. But a historic artifact, because it is historic, everybody has a way of connecting to. So we've seen a lot of interest and development in public archaeology programs that are specifically geared toward connecting people to their heritage, to the past, to their location through participation in excavations on a historic site. 
talk to me a little bit about that in greater detail because one of the major elements in archaeology universally is the need for public outreach and the re the need for incorporating the public not just for financial reasons as science budgets get cut on an almost regular basis but certainly because people are interested in this sort of thing they're interested in their heritage and there are now requirements in many archaeological projects to contain a historic outreach a public outreach component tell me how those venues emerge and and what public outreach is about so it, it it really is about engaging the public in the archaeology of historic sites um, and it, it emerges on different fronts there are um, there are groups that are actively engaged in uh, sponsoring and promoting public archaeology on a statewide basis uh, the Florida Public Archaeology Network is the premier uh, organization that's working at that level and FPAN has different regional centers that uh, promote archaeology, that have teaching modules, teaching carts that go out to the local schools, that work with sites that are under excavation in their area to make sure that that the public is aware of them, can can visit them, can participate in them as well. Um, I think on, you know, from, from my perspective, from CRM, um, it's much more an emphasis of how and why we do archaeology these days, particularly you know, as you know, much of the archaeology we do in CRM is survey to go out and see if there are sites in a project area that deserve further attention. But where we have those mitigation projects, where we have a significant site that can't be avoided and needs excavation, um, those almost routinely now have some sort of public outreach. And, I, you know, in my experience, the public loves visiting an archaeological site and they love visiting it time and time again because it's like a, a puzzle, a mystery that they've been made part of. You know, unlike a museum, you go to an archaeological site and what you see one visit may not be at all the same three weeks later when you visit the next time because the archaeologists may have made new discoveries, they may have changed some of their interpretations, there may be new artifacts that change some of the dating of the site. Um, so we, we see a lot of that repeat visitation that people want to come out and see archaeological sites and, you know, be part of, participate in the excavations and then also have the opportunity to share their ideas, their interpretations with the archaeologists. What about universities and, and academic programs that are focused on historic archaeology? Where do you see the uh, major programs and what do you see the trends in historic archaeology in terms of pedagogy and advanced education? So uh, there's... Uh, there are several programs that have that have um, you know st strong emphases. There are a number of programs that provide historical archaeology. I would say without a a, a distinct focus. Um, so, so University of, of Pennsylvania, where I went, uh, University of Syracuse, uh, um, Michigan's. Uh, Michigan State and Michigan Institute of Technology, um, the West Coast uh, University, I don't know as well, uh, University of South Alabama has had a very strong program, uh, University of West Florida, where FPAN is based. Uh, and, you know, those, those are all programs with, you know, multiple historical archaeologists on faculty or at least with uh, access to the perspectives of multiple archae historical archaeologists. I'm, I'm not sure that I see a specific pedagogical trend going out of those 
uh, universities. Um, we are somewhat lax in the, well, we're, we're somewhat languishing in terms of the development of, of cultural theories. So we are um, sort of operating on whatever the theoretical perspective is of the um, of the faculty at that at that university. That is the way it goes. And I, I'm forgetting to mention uh, University of Maryland because they're another very strong program. Um, yeah. And on that note, we are going to take another break, and we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Joe Joseph of New South Associates and the president of the Society for Historical Archaeology. After these words, don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to the Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, 21st Century Archaeology. My guest today is Dr. Joe Joseph, who is the president of the Society for Historical Archaeology and also the president of his own consulting company, New South Associates, based in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, one of the topics, Joe, that is, of course, of extreme relevance in this day and age 
is the historic archaeology of traditionally traditional minority communities and uh, one of the emerging archaeologies that we are looking at in historic archaeology is African American sites and the uh, historic archaeology of African American communities both uh, in uh, going back to the plantation era before that in many cases like we are looking at here in New York and also uh, cemeteries and uh, traditional burial uh, complexes. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on the history of African American uh, historic archaeology and investigations in that direction? So uh, our interest in African American sites uh, emerged on a couple of different fronts. There was the Parting Ways site uh, in the Northeast, and then there was work by uh, Charles Fairbanks and his students, most notably Teresa Singleton, on the slave components of, of coastal Georgia plantations. Um, and that the historical archaeology is ideally suited to be one of the the voices of the African American past. Most much of what happened in African American history wasn't recorded, and so archaeologists can make discoveries, make recognitions, allow them to connect dots that the African American citizens may not be aware of. Um, so I'll give an example of that and sort of use it as a a demonstration of how archaeology changed over time. Um, we archaeologists working on plantation sites routinely discovered a type of pottery that was a handmade earthenware pottery that looked a lot like uh, American Indian pottery, but it lacked any type of decoration. And Ivor Noel Hume, um, a, a historical archaeologist uh, working at Colonial Williamsburg, um, identified it and referred to it as Colono Indianware. And Noel Hume said, well, this is a type of pottery that the astute Indians must have been making for sale to the plantations. Um, as I mentioned, the project that I worked with with Bill Lees on Limerick Plantation was recovering large amounts of colonial ware. And at that, by that point in time, archaeologists were finally starting to see the light that, hey, we're finding lots of this stuff on the plantations. And there's African Americans here who, as Africans, knew how to make pottery. Maybe it was made by the African Americans. So Leland Ferguson in 1978 published an article on looking for the looking for the Afro in colonial Indian ware that hypothesized that indeed much of the colonial ware that we were seeing on plantations was a product of African American manufacture. Um, that was a big step. I mean, people were not recognizing something that, frankly, should have been obvious. But again, they were working from traditional biases. Handmade earthenware was Indian, etc. So seeing colonial ware as African-American has allowed us to recognize other attributes of it that also reflect that African heritage. Uh, for example, on colonial ware, we find a number of pieces that are marked with an X. So now other archaeologists, most notably Chris Fennell, doing research on um, African cosmologies, recognize the X as a symbol that is applied, is used in various ritual context. And so now we're starting to see that not only were African Americans making this pottery for their use on the plantations, but they were also marking it with X's and other symbols that may have signified the, their intent to use that vessel in some sort of a ritual context. Um, we can then now take it yet another step or two further. Um, I've been doing research of late on uh, the pottery that's being made, stoneware pottery of the Edgefield District, South Carolina, working again with Chris Fennell, where we have found similar types of marks, including the X, on stoneware 
that African Americans are making as enslaved potters working on these stoneware factories. And we've identified a number of marks on Kelowna ware that also then show up on the Edgefield stoneware. So we're now confident that these are marks that the African American potters were placing on stoneware vessels. Only now we have a completely different context. They're placing them on vessels who they don't control the use of. These are vessels that they're making working in a pottery factory that the potter is going to, the, the factory owner is going to sell and it's going to go out to a plantation somewhere else. So they don't know how it's going to use. And they've transformed the way this X mark is used. So now it's not being used as a ritual mark. We believe it's being used as a mark of cultural identity. And we believe what they're signifying with these marks is they go out to the plantation and they're signifying to other African Americans out on the plantations that, hey, I recognize that mark. I recognize it as a cultural symbol. I recognize that this pot was made by a fellow African American. And where does the thrust of African-American archaeology move? In other words, one of the things that I've noticed certainly is uh, an increased emphasis on cemetery excavation, on looking at slave quarters, and uh, essentially looking at at an entire new field um, in African-American archaeology that's not just confined to artifact analysis, but actually looking at settlement, looking at function, looking at the role of African-Americans in uh, traditional communities and also in uh, ancillary communities at plantations and that sort of thing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that field is expanding in terms of how we're looking at that type of archaeology? So I, I think we've become much more aware of the, 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 the presence of African burial grounds. Uh, and obviously the, the African burial ground in New York City is the sort of the hallmark project that brought everybody's attention nationally to the fact that these cemeteries exist and yet they're not recorded, they're not documented, they're, 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 they're virtually unknown, if not little known. Um, and we have seen that with uh, the, with a number of uh, with a number of sites, and we're working on developing ways that we can in, in turn inform the African American public about what to do if they think that they have a family cemetery. Cemeteries are difficult because they're very significant in African culture. Uh, the, the, you know, it's very important to bury. To, to bury the deceased in a in a landscape with fellow members of the family, where that they could all be be present, that the spirits inhabited that earth, that that was a very uh, culturally significant location, and yet African Americans, particularly on the plantation, did not control how the cemetery was designated, how the cemetery was treated over time. They didn't control the land itself, and these cemeteries were typically. Um, unmarked or, or marked with impermanent materials, and so, which didn't survive the passage of time. So one of the things the SHA will be doing next month is we'll be putting a section up on our, our website that specifically provides guidance of the different techniques you can, go out, you can use to go out and identify uh, African-American cemeteries uh, and, and other unrecorded uh, abandoned cemeteries. Um, we worked on another project where we found one of those cemeteries, and through genealogical research, which now because of Ancestry.com and other genealogical sites, we were able. We found a, an African American cemetery, 101 uh, individuals from a plantation and then tenant farmer community in in the south of Macon, Georgia. We traced the names of the tenant farmers who were working in the area in the 1870s and 1880s. 
And then we, in turn, going to ancestry, we were able to identify African-American descendants of two sisters who lived on one of the plantations. We reached out to them. We had them come in and visit during a family reunion, uh, visit the cemetery excavation while it was underway. And, in, and, and again, they were hopeful that they were seeing the remains of their ancestors, which they had been searching for because they had no idea where their, their ancestors were buried. We took um, uh, seven of the members of the descendants provided DNA samples, and we compared those with DNA samples we were able to extract from some of the teeth on the burials, and we identified that three indeed were uh, linearly associated with, with, the, with the burials. Um, so that project can be accessed at um, avondaleburialplace.org, and it includes a documentary on the archaeological research of how you go about um, identifying uh, cemeteries as well as the recovery uh, and then ultimately relocation of that cemetery. So I think one of the things that we are, are need to work on is to make sure that we're connecting African Americans to their heritage. We, you know, we're we're discovering it. We know where it is. We need to provide them the resources to help um, identify, recognize, and ultimately, you know, protect their resources. And I, we all tend to forget. I what, didn't even think about it until we were into that project. The impact of the Great Migration on the Southern landscape and how many African Americans left the South uh, in the late 1900s and early 20th century for jobs in the Midwest and the Northeast and other locations and broke all those connections with where uh, burial grounds and other places of their ancestry were located. The Great Northern Migration, certainly, that's uh, a major issue as well. We were uh, involved in in one of the uh, DNA matching projects here in New York City with the African burial ground uh, from the 17th century here uh, and early 18th century here in in New York City. And uh, there was a big program that was initiated and ultimately did not uh, get funding to match up the DNA, obviously, like you have, and track people's ancestors to the parts of Africa from which they originally came and obviously going forward that will be a wonderful way of tying people to their traditional homelands um, one of the questions I was going to ask you though is what about incre- is there an increase in involvement in archaeology on the uh, part of African Americans generally are they enrolling in graduate programs are we seeing greater involvement in the education and pedagogic components of uh, archaeology on the part of minority groups specifically African Americans or others as have, what have you seen we, we, we are seeing an increase. It, it is a very subtle increase, and I think it's going to be one that's going to take time to actually grow to fruition, um, but we have definitely seen a, an increase in the number of uh, African Americans and then others from diverse backgrounds in the SHA. So if I look at, if I look at the, the, the uh, demographic profile of our young members, it's significantly different than it was in my time in the SHA when we were, you know, predominantly a white institution. Uh, we're still heavily a white institution. We still need to work on changing that demography, but I think that the change is in, is in progress. What do you see as the future for historic archaeology going forward in the next, obviously the next few years are going to be a little bit of a shift generally. Uh, Do you see any implications or repercussions of the election and what's going on right now in uh, historic preservation generally and historic archaeology in particular? 
Well, I, you know, as, as always with a significant sea change in administrations, you have to be concerned and you have to go back out and do the education part to make sure that the current batch of representatives and senators understand what it is we do and the value that we bring to our projects. I, I you know, I don't think the Republicans, we're not a, we're not a partisan topic. There's a great love of American history and heritage on both sides of the aisle. I frankly think that our that our heritage is one of the greatest assets that America has, and we need to make sure that the representation understands that historical archaeological sites are irreplaceable. Once you destroy a historic archaeological site, you can't go and replace it. It's not uh, so. Any, anytime someone refers to us as being like an environmental regulation, I point out to them that no, that's not the case. The environment can recover under the correct situations uh, and can be restored under the correct situations. You can't restore an archaeological site that's been destroyed. Once it's been destroyed, the information, the value to the public it contains is lost forever. So we will make sure that we are communicating that with Congress and that everybody understands the benefit that we bring to engaging Americans with their local heritage. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Joe Joseph, uh, the head of the Society for Historic Archaeology and the president of New South Associates. Joe, thanks so much for participating in the program. We're glad to have you, and I think this is a very enlightening lesson to our listenership. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. It was a pleasure. Good night. Good night, and we will hear and talk to you next time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.